Good morning, City Church. Oh no, he meant it. We're starting at 10. It's really happening. So if you can hear my voice from back there, go ahead and make your way in. Make your way to the seats. Uh, for the people that are online, I got your back. We are actually going to start uh, starting at 10 o'clock, uh, asking everybody to come in. Uh, but I want to tell you why, just in case you missed the, uh, the uh, email that I sent out uh, from our church account a few days ago and everything. I want to tell you why we're going to get started uh, on time from now on. It's a brand new rhythm. After 10 years as a church, we can finally start doing it. Um, and, and the reasons are actually three. Uh, first and foremost, uh, if you've been around the last few weeks, you may know that we're going through a great deal of change. We're actually um, having two of our elders step out to plant something brand new. Uh, we are uh, actually losing a near and dear friend, uh, Will Boshin, who's stepping out of and has stepped out of the vision and lead preaching role. And so we've got this time as a body that we actually need to spend uh, doing some just kind of City 101. What is City Church? Who is City Church? Where are we going? What are we doing? And what I'm going to try to do is, uh, maybe not every week, but uh, for the next several weeks, start our gathering with a time of just that vision. But there's another reason why we're going to be uh, starting on time, and that's because we're actually going to get back, Lord willing, and uh, maybe at this point just uh, paying attention to all of the statistics and everything with COVID, uh, COVID willing and uh, enabling uh, to start Kid City here in the next few weeks. And so uh, it, it just seems like with normal rhythms kind of coming into the room late, uh, trying to then add on top of that, getting our kids where they need to go, that's not going to happen. So I just want to encourage you, if you can come early, uh, get everything set up, uh, be in chairs, ready to worship uh, on Sunday mornings uh, right at 10. That's what we're going to be aiming at. It's going to be a new thing, no condemnation if uh, getting the kids in the uh, car and everything else takes a few uh, extra minutes. Uh, that's totally fine, but you will be missing out on just a little bit uh, here during this time. But I also want to uh, start doing that because we, uh, we are planning on continuing to pursue a revival of joyful worship. And in order for us to do that, we ought to be worshiping. And so I want to make sure that we are also... Uh, uh, paying attention to and protecting time. Uh, we're going to try to abbreviate some of our gatherings over the next uh, few weeks so that we can make sure that we're keeping everybody safe as well as welcomed in worshiping uh, here at City Church. This is the first week that we're doing the City 101 at the beginning of one of our gatherings. And so I, I want to be able to tell you who, uh, who City Church is, what we are doing, what we are going to be uh, trying to move towards over the next few weeks. And what I thought that I would do is actually start that process in James chapter 1. Uh, you can turn there with me if you like, but we're not going to be spending the rest of the gathering in that space. We're going to just be spending uh, time this morning. And there's a couple of things that I want to pull out of it. So if you would, uh, listen to God's Word, and then I'm going to pull a few things out for us for this next season. God says this through His servant James, "'Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness.'" And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, 
He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, uh, this last week, uh, we actually uh, covered this verse in our lead meeting, uh, and it's because it actually has several different points that I think really apply to us. And you might be thinking, well, of course it does. It's talking about fiery trials. It's got to apply to us. That's actually the thing that I least want to pull from this morning as it relates to James chapter 1. There are three different things that I uh, kind of want to cast a little bit of vision for, and the first one actually begins with repentance. Uh, I don't think that our church is always, uh, and that our elder team specifically, has always created enough space for public repentance and confession, so I actually wanted to start uh, with that myself as a representative of our elder team this morning and just confess to you guys that I think that while there have been a lot of really well-intentioned things in the past, while we have wanted to be generous and gracious uh, by being unified and everything else, that actually at some point uh, that led into too much time and uh, has left our body in a place where we have not been able to actually move forward in a unified way, and you, yes, you, have actually been impacted and even hurt because of that. And while I don't think that it really stemmed from, like, an internal, like, sin struggle inside of us, I do think that at some time it became neglectful of you. And so I actually want to initiate uh, a new season for our church where we uh, even kind of needed into our gatherings have a time of uh, confession and repentance for us. Most of the time that will take uh, place uh, by following the word into prayer as we're going to here in just a minute. But I wanted to begin that by saying I'm really sorry for the ways that our elder team and our elder team's inaction has left maybe you vulnerable, more vulnerable than uh, we wanted you to be. And, uh, and that's on us. And so uh, I pray that you would actually receive that, that you would hear that, that you would be filled with grace towards us, and that you would forgive us in the midst of that. If that sparks anything in you and you need to have more conversations, uh, I hope that that's true. I want to have more conversations about that. So if there are specific ways that um, that has impacted you, please let uh, me or another one of our elders know that during this time. But that's not the only way that I see James impacting something that I want for our church. I don't want for us just to be a church of repentance and confession, though I do really want that and want to begin with that. I actually want to see something else that I've I've wanted for our church and that I've heard over the last few weeks that I know you want for our church, and that is steadfastness. Several times in this set of verses, it says that uh, uh, we face fiery trials in order to be uh, steadfast, in order for that to produce steadfastness in us. And it ends actually here in verse 8, talking about the person that does things without faith and asking God for things without faith. And it says that he is a unsteady, double-minded man that's tossed to and fro like waves of the sea when wind picks them up and drives them in different places. Uh, I want for City Church to be a place of steadfastness, a place of steadiness. Um, If the Lord wills it, if he actually gives us the spirit of steadfastness and steadiness, that's something that I want to actually create uh, for uh, City Church. And so I ask you that you would not just expect that, but that you would partner with us in the midst of that. So we're going to be looking for steadfastness in the near future. You may even see that word steadfastness start popping up more in the things that we are preaching about in our uh, mission statement as a church. We're actually going to be seeking that out as something that uh, we need that our culture and that our generation needs, we're going to be looking for steadfastness. 
I've been asked by a lot of you guys also, and this is kind of where we're going to end before we start a prayer of confession, um, is uh, that y'all have asked uh, me, hey, what, what can I do? What, uh, what does this church need a lot of during this time? And uh, of course, uh, not just the Christian answer, but the very real answer is that we need your prayers. But we need your prayers for something really specific, and it's contained here in this verse. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. It goes on to say that if we ask for that in faith, that he'll give that to us. I need that a lot right now. I think that Andrew and Carl need that a lot right now, that our body needs that a lot right now. And so what I want to do is uh, bow our heads and spend the next few moments uh, doing a couple of things. First of all, um, asking for God uh, to, uh, to give us collectively together uh, wisdom, and then also spending some time in personal confession. Uh, you may not need to confess or repent of uh, neglecting a body like the elders uh, have, uh, in this time, but there, are, there is something that you're carrying into this room. There's something that's been impacting your week, and so I want to provide some space for that as well. So I'm going to do what's called a pastoral prayer. If you, maybe you've never been in a church before that's done that, I'm just going to give some space for you to talk with God this morning before we start to sing to God. Does that sound good? All right, bow with me. God and Father, um, I confess to you that... Um, I have not been a steady man, that I have not been steadfast in my role as an elder for this church. I, I confess that to you. Um, I don't even need to do it publicly, but I am because I think that it's impacted uh, our body. And so I ask for your forgiveness for that. I ask you that you would, uh, in Jesus Christ, allow for uh, me and for the other elders to feel free uh, of that uh, sin. But Father, together, corporately, there are just a variety of different sins uh, this morning that we need to confess to you. And so we want to spend the next few moments uh, just uh, confessing that uh, and then also asking you for steadfastness and for wisdom as a church. Go ahead and pray for those two things. I'm so glad to be here with you this morning. If you would, uh, if you haven't already, uh, open up a copy of Scriptures 2 Acts chapter 10, which is what was just uh, read. But we're going to actually be throughout the rest of that chapter and then actually on into uh, Acts chapter 11 as well. And so you'll want to keep a, uh, keep a finger there so that you uh, can be with us the whole time. Uh, we are going to make a, uh, a practice uh, moving forward of actually sending out the sermon text. Um, uh, sometime on like Friday or Saturday, to make sure that uh, you can read before you get here, because it would be impossible, really, to read through uh, a chapter and a half of Scripture and also try to do the other things that we're trying to do in terms of keeping uh, our gatherings uh, more concise. The title of the sermon uh, this morning is The Way for All People. The Way for All People. Now, there are a few uh, a few words in there that you might even recognize if you did spend some of your time yesterday reading this passage. But what for, I want for us to get about that is, is that in order for there to be a way for all people, there has to be no boundaries really separating us from one another and us from God. 
And for all of the uh, talk about our nation's past and all of the uh, need to break down barriers uh, for moving into the future, I've got something to say about that. For all of the talk that we've done about that, we sure are really good as human beings at actually building barriers. We, we almost can't help ourselves but uh, categorize, form biases, and segment ourselves from one another. For all of the talk about inclusivity and diversity and perspective, we live, if you really were to look at it, pretty exclusive, uh, monolithical, and kind of narrow lives. And I think that there's something about that that is just kind of inherent in the human experience. And that's not all good. In some ways, we even uh, accept those boundaries from really early ages and, and even kind of keep them throughout our lives even now. So I want you to think about the economy of kind of the schoolyard. When you were in grade school, you stepped onto the playground and you kind of almost inherently knew, some, no one had to really tell you that there was a, uh, uh, some barriers that were moving in and around there. Maybe you were the type that was pretty athletic. You played uh, kickball or jungle gym or you played king of the mountain, and that was just uh, what you did. And there was some type of economy that worked in there for you to earn kind of some power and prestige uh, to segment yourself. Maybe you were maybe uh, the more creative type, like my daughter, who, uh, who plays in imaginary things like uh, uh, even now uh, uh, on the grade school playground and everything. She finds and gravitates towards the kids that, uh, that do things that are just more creative. They play cats. I don't get it. That's not, that's not, I never, I don't think that this will shock you. I never played cats on the playground whenever I was little. Maybe you did, and that's great. Maybe you were a little bit more of a loner. You were kind of on the sidelines, uh, and you, very, you were very tuned in to some of those boundaries that were created for you. Uh, nobody really had to teach us that. That was something that was kind of born into us, something that we naturally gravitated towards. But I'm not sure that as we get older that we uh, do that any less inherently. I kind of even think uh, to myself uh, about the way that uh, I feel at restaurants. I feel like there's an economy working at restaurants. You've got these kind of entrepreneurial-ish people that are really trying to strive and, and make some jumps, and they're called waiters. I mean, if you want, uh, it's kind of even uh, something that people talk about. They go to New York or they go out to L.A. to become actors, but one of the things that they gravitate towards is acting. It's because they're kind of industrial. They're good at relating with people, and they kind of have their own little clique in that restaurant. You've got hostesses. You've got busboys. You've got uh, chefs. You've got uh, people even that are coming to the restaurant. There's like an economy about how you uh, tip and how you get taken care of. These are things that I think are just inherent. They're kind of uh, beat into us that we kind of naturally gravitate towards. Maybe that's something that you are really sensitive to. And even uh, 2020, in this last election, you were really paying attention to uh, some of the themes that we're talking about here. And, and what I would say is that if you are really for uh, heterogeneity, just a mixing of all peoples, uh, 2020 oddly had some promise for you. In, in some ways that I think really baffled the experts, the polling people, everything, what they found out was that on election day, the people that you would have imagined uh, that one person would have gained ground with, they didn't gain that ground that they thought that they did. 
And it shows us that uh, people aren't so easily categorized from the top down, but we do tend to find and gravitate towards things on our own. And it baffles experts the way that we do this. I would say that if you are truly for boundary breaking, if you're one of those people that naturally gravitates towards wanting to uh, tear down walls in between people groups, I've got a better place for you to think about that this morning. And it's not in politics. It's not in economics. It's not in inherent bias training because nothing in all of creation exists as a boundary quite the way that spiritual boundaries do. Maybe, maybe that's something that you didn't quite get in your reading of Acts chapter 10 and chapter 11, but for me, whenever I look at these verses, there, are, there is something that God is trying to do in the tearing down of boundaries between mankind, and I think it's the largest and most interesting kind of boundary to study, to get your head around, and to participate in the breaking down of. Here's what I see. If I were just to put it into a sentence, here's what I see in Acts chapter 10. I'll say it three times for people that are note takers and for people that just need to come back to us and pay attention. And that's this. God's great gospel prepares the way for all people to enter into his boundless kingdom. God's great gospel actually prepares the way for all people to enter into his boundless kingdom. God's great gospel prepares the way for all people to enter into his boundless kingdom. Did you hear it? That's where we're going this morning. And this, this uh, passage really has two main characters and a third. We'll talk about the third here in a little bit, but there's two main characters. There's Peter and Cornelius. Now, Peter and Cornelius couldn't have been more different from one another. Peter was a Jewish man. He was a fisherman that was called by Jesus as a disciple, and he left the life that he knew to go and follow Jesus. And once he got there, you found out that he was actually a pretty zealous man. He was pretty passionate Maybe you can identify with that because you're a pretty passionate person. Peter is your guy. He was the first one to recognize, at least verbally, Jesus as the Messiah. Do you remember Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And he said, you're, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. That's who he is. And after uh, Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter became an apostle that was actually in charge of taking this gospel to new places. That's who Peter was. But that couldn't have been more different in some ways because he was a central figure in Acts. He was an early church leader, and now he's years into his apostolic ministry. We read Acts, and we kind of think, oh, he's just a couple of months in on this because we've only gone through a couple of chapters. He's probably more like five to seven years into this apostolic ministry where we pick up here today, but he couldn't have been more different from the other man, Cornelius. Cornelius, we're told right at the top of the chapter, is a Roman centurion. Now, what does that mean? That means a few things. First of all, he was Roman. He was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. 
he was a centurion, which actually meant that he had some form of power and prestige in that economy for where he was. He was likely paid five times as much as the 100 men that were kind of underneath his authority, and people paid attention to him. And because he had that 100-man team that he was kind of guiding, he also necessarily had some power and influence in the region. It wasn't just those 100 men. It was likely thousands upon thousands of people that were, would have known who he was, would have paid attention to him. He would have been a powerful and influential person person. But we're not just told that. We're told that he had a good reputation among the Jews. Why was this? It's because we're told also that he feared the Lord, and as evidence of that fear, he was generous in almsgiving and making prayers. But there's something that he didn't have in the midst of this that Peter did have, and that's knowledge, saving knowledge, faithful knowledge of Jesus Christ. He didn't have that. So these two men were very, very different than one another, um, and, and, and both of these men are actually uh, given these visions by God in order that there might be boundaries that are overcome. God is gloriously writing a story like none other. God is actually preparing both of these men. That word preparation, you're going to hear that a lot this morning because God was preparing them. But he wasn't just preparing them for something that was kind of a more, he was preparing them for a way forward. And that way wasn't just for these two men, it was for all men. And it was for all men to enter his boundless kingdom. I want you to pick up with me in verse 17. It says, now while Peter was inwardly, uh, now uh, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to the vision that he had seen and what it might mean, behold, two, uh, behold the men that were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. What we find in that verse, in verse 17, is, is that he was inwardly perplexed by this vision that God had given him. And can we admit something real fast? If you've read this passage, it, it's a pretty perplexing uh, vision that he's received. This man, Peter, sees this thing, something like a great sheet descending out of heaven, and there's all of these animals, there's all of these reptiles, there's all of these birds that were in this sheet Peter sees what looks like this sheet coming down out of heaven, and it's filled with all kinds of animals. And lest you read this like we would today, you'd go, oh, he's seeing something fun. He's seeing a zoo. God's putting a zoo in front of him. That's kind of neat. That's not at all how Peter was receiving this. Peter was seeing this great sheet descending out of heaven, and what he sees is not a zoo. He sees a sheet filled with all kinds of unclean and common things. That word common, uh, we, it loses its translation for us. That word common uh, in the original text would have sounded more like profane things that were not anything like what he would have wanted to eat. It wasn't just like, oh, they're kind of unclean animals. So he, was, he was looking at this from a legalistic perspective because he had all of these dietary laws that he would have had to try to keep for his entire life. And then he sees and hears uh, that he is supposed to kill and eat these animals, these profane, unclean animals. His, Peter's experience of this was very different Peter is hungry. He's there in the morning. He's starting to prepare something. He sees this vision, and the Lord commands him, kill and eat. 
Now, now we've got to remember that that's a vision that God's giving him. It's not like a real thing that's happening. God is not literally saying, go on up into the sheet and kill something and eat it. It's a vision that he's giving. And, and that's important for us to know because what we need to know is what Paul, uh, Peter needed to know, and that's that the Lord is actually trying to teach him something. And the thing that he's trying to teach him goes against everything he's ever been told. From the time that he was, could even remember something, he had been told, don't eat these kinds of things, eat these kinds of things. Okay, I want you to, like, for us, we go, well, he's just looking at a pig. That's bacon. He must have been really excited about that. He was not excited about that. He was looking at that sheet, and he was going, oh, that is like death for me. That's what I've been told my entire life. So I want for us to see and hear Peter uh, just, I mean, exclaim, no, never. I would never eat anything like that. Why? Because I've never eaten anything unclean. What Peter's saying is, I've never tasted anything that's on that sheet. I've never had anything unclean enter my body. I've never had anything profane make me unlawfully unclean. That's what he's saying, and I want for us to have sympathy for Peter in the midst of this. It's no easy thing because what the Lord is doing, and I want you to hear this in your circumstances today as you sit here, the Lord is rearranging significant parts of Peter's worldview. Do you you know what that feels like? I suspect that a lot of us in this room knows what it's like when God starts tinkering with the things and how we view this world and how uncomfortable that can be. So I want for us to have sympathy for Peter because here's what happens. Peter gets to the heart of all of this in verse 28 when he mentions just how unlawful all of this stuff is. And what we see is, is that Peter is, is receiving this teaching. He's perplexed by it, but he's receiving it. He knows that it's for him, and he's asking God, you know, kind of back, uh, what is it that you're trying to teach me? And, and there's this little piece that we want to pass over where we can find that uh, Peter has already been on that road. Where does it say that Peter is staying? This is like a really, you'd almost read over it if you didn't know what was going on here. Where is he staying? He's staying at Simon's house. What was Simon? What did he do for a living? Simon was a tanner. Do you know what a tanner is? It's a person that I was actually looking at uh, some things this week, some leather goods uh, this week online. Uh, A tanner is the person that literally in this day and age would have been killing these animals, uh, taking their skin off, and tanning the leather. What does that mean that Simon was doing? Simon was killing. He was around death all the time. This man, the man that he was staying with, would have been a person that was like ritualistically and perpetually unclean. That's who he's staying with. So we don't need to pick up with Peter and have like sympathy like he's just not, like the gospel hasn't been doing any work on him. He knows, he knows that God is doing something different in this time after Jesus resurrected. He knows that God's up to something. He knows that the gospel is supposed to change something about how he views the world. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, and he knows in his heart just how unlawful it is. Go with me to verse 23. We see the men that Cornelius sent show up. The Spirit of God has talked to Peter. They ask for Peter. He hears them. What does he do? 
Now, what would the law have required that he do? This is really important for you to get this. What would the law have required him to do if these three Gentile men, one of them, let's not lose sight of this, is a Roman soldier? Peter has a pretty, like, storied past with the Roman soldiers, right? He has all of the reason in the world, both from a legal perspective with the law of God, but then also from a personal perspective of like, hey, this soldier is showing up and asking for me. Maybe I ought to pretend like I'm not even here. The Spirit of God says, no, I'm preparing a way for you. Let him in. And he does what? He invites them in. Peter invites them in, and this is just evidence of what God is doing. Inviting these Gentile men into this house would not have just been something for Peter. It would have been scandalous in Joppa. You think that a Roman soldier shows up with these other two Gentile servants and Jewish Joppa doesn't like take note? It was a pretty small town at the time. Uh, still is. It's actually just uh, near Tel Aviv. It's called Jaffa now. It's a really beautiful place. You think that people wouldn't have seen what was happening here? These Gentile men getting invited into the house? This was a scandal going on. And the only reason why Peter would have been willing to do it is because God had prepared him with this vision and with this voice. And if that wasn't scandalous enough, traveling back with them to go see Cornelius would have been even more than specious. It would have been something that everybody would have taken notice of. But when they arrive the next day, Cornelius at his house has gathered this big party, and they're not of Jewish people. We need to know that. They were not Jewish people. Peter shows up at Cornelius's house, and you can get further evidence of how uh, God has been working on Peter because Cornelius sees him, has this large crowd, and Cornelius bows down and starts worshiping Peter. Now, that seemed to us, we just go, that's strange. Like, why would any uh, human do that? But for a Jew, they would have seen people do this all the time with the teachers of the law, with the Pharisees. They would have seen these expressions of uh, some kind of favor given to those people all the time. And it would have been really easy for Peter to just stand there and receive it. But God's been working on his heart. What does he say? He says in verse 26, stand up. I too am a man. What's inherent in that? God's been in the process of changing Peter's heart so that he can see that this man is just like him in some way. Verse 28 says, God has shown me. Peter's confessing this. God has shown me. This is a weird way, by the way, to introduce yourself to a group of people. What does he say in verse 28? He says, God has shown me that I should should not call any person common or unclean. Can you imagine somebody coming into your home and going like, I'm here, guys, and God has shown me you're not a bad person. Like, that's kind of a strange thing to say to people when you first meet them. But no, he says, hey, get up. I'm a man just like you are, and God is changing and rearranging my heart. I'm here to be with you. That's what he's really saying. That's what he's really after. It's a pretty amazing thing that God is doing in the midst of these passages, especially as we kind of dig underneath it, we can see what Peter is really doing. He's confessing something to these people, and he's connecting it in with this vision of the animals that he's seen, but he knows that God's teaching him something more significant. And what Peter is confessing is, I've spent my whole life calling people P, 
people that were unlike me, unclean and profane. That's what God is teaching Peter. He's teaching him that he spent his entire life uh, building barriers and walls in between him and other people that ought not to have been there, and God is changing his heart. That's what the exciting news of this text is, is that God's teaching Peter, hey, listen, those walls are figments of your imagination, or to the extent that they exist, they're not things that I've put there, they're things you have put there, and Peter's realizing, Peter's making the connection. Go with me to verse 34. He says this. Why is he here? Why has he uh, realized that he has spent his whole life calling people unclean and profane and that that's not okay? He connects it in with the gospel. He says that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Do you hear the other part of our like one sentence this morning? God's great gospel is preparing a way. That's what we see here. He's preparing a way. Who is he preparing it for? For all people from every nation. Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Is that familiar to you? Well, of course it is. Like, let's be honest. We read passages like this a lot of times, and we look at the passage and we go, I already knew that. I'm a Gentile. God loves me. This is easy. Like, let's just go on to the next set of verses. We don't have much to see here. That's not at all true. It's, it's not that God has just had this message for Peter in this one time, in this one place that now affects us. It's that he's actually trying to do something in our hearts as well. And that's teach us that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That might have been familiar to you, but it was completely foreign to Peter and what it is saying is, is that you might be partial, you, must be, you might be judgmental, you might be unaccepting, you might be dismissive, you might be biased, but God isn't. Did you hear that? You might have all kinds of like uh, predetermined biases in your heart. You might have partiality in your heart. You might be judgmental of other people. I've taken to asking a question of people that I really honestly want to know answers to. I've, I've started asking them, hey, uh, what did you say to your wife in the car on the way home? That's what I need to know. I don't need the polished version. I need what you think. I need what you actually think. Why? Because we're all judgmental, biased. But God isn't. God is not partial. He shows no partiality. You might be the person that was on the playground 25 years ago and you were on the sideline, there was every barrier built around you. You never had access to anything. What you need to hear this morning is is that God is not partial. God is not partial. He doesn't love those people better than he loves you. He loves you. This is what God is trying to teach us. That anyone from any nation who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And you can see the Spirit moving in Peter, not just because of some vision, but because he understands the heart of the gospel. In verse 36, Peter tells these Gentiles that the gospel is the good news of peace through Jesus, who is Lord of all. 
That's, that, that's, that's the message of the gospel, that uh, the gospel is good news of peace through Jesus, who is Lord of all. And so what I want to do is actually read, starting in uh, verse 36, I want to read all the way down to 43 with you, and it says this, as for the world, uh, word, and this is Peter preaching to these Gentiles for the first time, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of the peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism of John proclaimed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Did you hear the word all? You'll hear it a few more times. For God was with him. And we are all witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded to us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and of the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's the message of the gospel. And, and, and he's actually doing this for all who were oppressed by the devil and for everyone who believes in him. And then you know what happens after Peter preaches this message to these Gentiles? Do you know what happened from the reading? Another Pentecost. Another descending of the Holy Spirit on these Gentiles. Another uh, flaming tongues moment that anoints and fills these people, and there are signs and wonders that are done in them, and then they are not just baptized by the Holy Spirit, they're baptized by water. Go and read it. The God who is God over all creation and all peoples tore down boundaries between him and the peoples, and he anointed the Gentiles, yes, even the Gentiles, the unclean, the profane, with the same spirit and the same baptism that the Jews had already enjoyed. God prepares as a way for all people to enter into his boundless kingdom. That's what he's doing. That's what he's always done. That's been the aim of God's entire ministry of reconciliation is to bring every tribe, every tongue, every nation, people from those things and bring them into his boundless kingdom. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing in you. That's what he's doing today. That's what God is doing. And this reminds me, this whole thing reminds me a little bit of the story of Jonah. Do you remember the story of Jonah? Like not the felt board Jonah, but the one that you actually read where uh, God comes to Jonah, who's a prophet. And the worst enemies of the Jews were the Ninevites. The Ninevites had done unspeakable things to the Jews, unspeakable things to the Jews. And God comes to Jonah and he says, go to Nineveh. And Jonah goes, no way, no way I'm going to Nineveh. 
And you know what he does? He doesn't just not go to Nineveh. He doesn't just stay there in Israel. He gets on a boat and he tries to go to the south of France because it's warm and sunny in the south of France and there are no Ninevites there. That's what he was doing. And God was not going to have any of it. You know the story about the great fish. Uh, three days, spits him up. And Jonah, I mean, apart from any willingness on his own, does what my youngest son does and just like gets to Nineveh. And he goes only about one third of the way into the city. And he goes, yet yeah, this many days and y'all are going to die. And everybody from the king to the cows repents of their sin and says, woe to us. They rub ashes. They do everything to show God, please do not destroy us. That's kind of what I feel like is happening here a little bit. It at least reminds me of it a little bit. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus says this to the disciples. He says, you've received the, uh, the, uh, you've received the Spirit. You're going to receive the Spirit. You've received the gospel. And now what I want you to do is take that gospel to Jerusalem. And they go, check we're in Jerusalem. And then he says, and then I want you to take it to Judea. And they go, okay, that's to the south of us. We can handle that. We know the Judeans, like they're Jewish. That's cool. And then he says, I don't want you to just take it to the south. I want you to take it to the north. I want you to take it to the Samaritans. And they have to be thinking, really? The Samaritans? No. And then he says, to the ends of the earth. And then we pick up seven years later with Peter, and where has he gone? Where's he gone? He's gone to the sea. He's gone west. Think about it this way. This, this I literally made me laugh out loud because I'm a huge, huge nerd. Simon Peter, in seven years of taking the gospel to people, has only made it as far as the western part of the, I mean, he's gone to the sea. He's gone to a beach town. And who has he gone there to? Simon Peter has gone to stay with Simon the Tanner. He's just gone to the exact same type of person that he is, literally by name. That's the only thing that he's done up until this point. Peter the Jew has gone to, Simon Peter the Jew has only gone to Simon the Tanner, the Jew, and he's gone west and taking that gospel. And now what God is doing is he's saying, no, 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 I was dead serious. I want you to take this to all people from every nation. Peter is overtly doing something that I think we all do. He is limiting his expectations of what the gospel can do. That's what Peter's doing. Peter is, I think, unintentionally, just he's got these barriers in his mind. He's not even thinking about the Gentiles. He's got those barriers actually sitting there saying, hey, not for, not for them. And I think we all do that to one point or another. We think, man, the gospel can't change my roommate. The gospel can't take root in uh, Islamic communities. The gospel can't do that. The gospel can't end my dependence on alcohol or transform my marriage or reconcile the races, and it definitely can't comfort the brokenhearted and we may not say those things out loud, but in our actions we're declaring we just don't think that there is enough power in the gospel to break down those kinds of barriers. 
We're just like Peter. Like Peter, we say in our hearts when we see this great sheet descending, we say, no way. There's just no way that the gospel can do that. We are building spiritual boundaries in Jesus' boundless kingdom. Up until this point in history, Peter and every apostle and every Christian, and if you read far enough into uh, Acts chapter 11, the crowd waiting for Peter upon his scandalous return, they've spent years advancing the gospel in little ways amongst the Jews because they couldn't even imagine the great harvest that God intended to bring forward amidst the Gentiles that we represent today. They couldn't even imagine it. They couldn't imagine that the gospel was that great. They were content to just graze on the edges of this vast and measureless field of God's infinite grace. But praise God, God prepared a way in Peter's heart to understand just how far-reaching the gospel might be. And Jesus called him and spent years teaching him and is teaching him now in the midst of this moment Did any of this sound familiar to you? Jesus is actually teaching him the same way that he's always taught Peter. Do you remember what happened with Peter? Peter is standing there with Jesus before the crucifixion, just 24 hours, within the 24-hour window of that, and Jesus goes, Peter, I've got something to share with you. You're going to deny me. You're going to do it three times, and you're going to do it before the rooster crows. And what does Peter say? He says the same thing that he's saying here in Acts chapter 10. He says, no way, Jesus. I'm definitely not going to deny you. And then in the next few hours, three times before dawn, he denies Jesus. And then what does, what does Jesus do? Does he like put him out of his kingdom? Does he build boundaries around Peter? No, he, he, the resurrected Jesus actually comes to the dejected Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord. Then, then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. Peter sees this sheep descending three times, and he goes, I get it, Lord. I don't know what you're doing, but I know that it's you. I know that you're the one who's tearing these things down, who's wanting to teach me something. Here in Acts 10, Peter sees the sheet of profanity and of the unclean, and he he hears God say, take and eat, and he says, no way. There's just no way that I can do that. And then God says, don't call unclean what I have made clean. Don't call unclean what I have made clean. It's almost like God is whispering to Peter and to us, you think we're still talking about food, don't you? You you think that I care about what you think about the dietary rules and about what you're putting into your body. And Peter hears God and he knows better. God is saying something entirely different. He's saying that I am preparing the way. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, the way, the one who said that he was the way, he does this. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane 
when he's about to be betrayed, when he's about to be crucified, and he sees something like a sheet descend out of heaven with all of the unclean, with all of the profanity, with all of the common. He sees something like a sheet let down in front of him with the sins of the saints, those who the Father had given him. And God says something different to Jesus than he said to Peter. Instead of saying, kill so that you might live, he says to Jesus, be killed that they might live. Jesus is the one true way. And, and Jesus, when he sees this, uh, uh, when he's given the sheet of sins of the saints that he's got to then go to the cross and die for, he doesn't respond the way that Peter does by saying, by no means, Father, no way. What does he say? He says, not my will, but yours be done. Why is that? It's because Jesus broke down all of the boundaries for everyone. He took all of the sins of the saints, all of the profanity. Jesus took every broken law that Peter was so concerned about, every lie that you've ever told, every covetous thought that we've ever thought, every second of time that we've ever stolen from our employer, every lustful, every adulterous moment of our lives every bit of disrespect towards our parents, every word of gossip that's ever come out of our lips, Jesus took that and he died for it. And Peter, knowing and understanding the gospel, was prepared. He knew that keeping the dietary laws was not going to save him. Even though he was still operating under what he knew, he also knew that Jesus was the only one the only one that could perfectly keep the law. Jesus was the only one who could perfectly keep the law and give Peter his righteousness. God's great gospel breaks the biggest boundary of all history, the one that exists between man and God. And this is just so that a zealot and a legalist, and a people-pleasing Jew like Peter. And it's, it's just so that a earnest but ignorant Gentile like Cornelius could repent of their sins and have faith in the same Savior, receive the same Spirit, be unified by the same baptism, and live in the same boundless kingdom that you and I live in today. Praise Jesus for Praise Jesus that God's great gospel prepared a way for all people to enter into his boundless kingdom. This passage, this perplexing gospel, is something that we can worship God for because no boundary still exists between us and God, and that means that no boundary has to exist between us. That's the good news of this boundless kingdom. I want to spend two final moments um, asking a question that I think that this passage asks. And it's only, it's only a little related, but I think that it actually intersects with our present moment, the one that we're currently living in. This passage asks us an important question, and that question is not if God has prepared us for his will and calling, but if we will obey even when we don't understand. This passage does not say that the question is whether or not God has prepared us 
to obey his calling, but whether or not we will obey that calling even when we don't understand. The God of this universe has prepared you in the gospel for this pandemic. He has prepared you for the sleepless nights of parenthood. He has prepared you for the argument that you had with your spouse that left you feeling isolated. He has prepared you for the unexpected diagnosis, the unforeseen death in our families recently. He has prepared us for the relocation of a friend. He has prepared us for the unknown of our present life as a body here at City Church. The great gospel, the great gospel way of Jesus has prepared us for anything and the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. So the question that remains is whether or not you will obey God's calling for your life even when you don't understand that you will be faithful to the calling to which you have been called, that you will have spiritual courage in Christ to live humbly yet assertively through trial, that you will live as a co-conqueror with Christ and live by his way, obedient to all his commands in loving submission amidst his boundless kingdom. The question for us this morning is not whether or not God prepares us for everything. The gospel has prepared us for everything. The great gospel of God has prepared a way for all peoples to enter into his boundless kingdom. But the question is now whether or not we will obey that calling even when we don't understand our circumstances. That's the question for our body today. That's the question for us as Christians as we live amidst all of these fiery trials that James talks about. And that's what I want to end in praying for and in taking communion for. So bow with me. Father, you say to us through your servant Paul in Ephesians that Jesus is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in its ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility that has existed between us and you and that Jesus came and preached peace to us who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through him we have access in one spirit to you. So God and Father, we ask you that you would allow for us to uh, know and understand something more of your boundless kingdom this morning. Lord, that we would be equipped uh, not to feel as dejected sons and daughters, but as embraced sons and daughters in the gospel. That we would not feel as those who are unclean and profane, uh, but, Lord, that we would feel righteous as Christ because he has given us his righteousness. Father, I pray that you would allow for us to know just how intimately you love us and how we have been made one with Jesus. We have been unified in the Spirit together. And, Father, your great gospel does that. Father, I pray that you would allow for this congregation to represent in no small way 
a boundless kingdom that you have already inaugurated, that you are revealing, and that one day you will send your Son to completely reveal to us. Father, we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.